Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Bible, let me invite you to open it to the letter of Ephesians. This morning we're going to be reading and then stepping our way through chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, thanksgiving and prayer of the Apostle Paul for these churches. A New Year's Day small group this morning. It'd be great. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, to kick off our first five series and its emphasis on prayer. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit For this reason, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So let's pray together. Oh Lord, we look to You. We do ask that You would grant the Spirit to come and to illumine the eyes of our hearts, enlighten our souls, so we might know all the resources we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and have our hearts greatly encouraged as we head into a new year as your people, to be your people for your glory. Please come and help us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So as the story of Harry Potter starts out, 
We find a kid who, while he's among his more nuclear family, doesn't much know who he is until he's virtually adopted by his Hogwarts family. And then as things progress, he comes to discover things his magical kin already know about him. Through them, he comes to realize his true identity and the wealth of resources that his identity involves. For instance, he has a gracious and powerful benefactor. You know him as Dumbledore. Okay? He has this hope belonging to his election. He is the chosen one. He has all these riches of devoted friendship that he discovers as the story progresses again. Uh, he can do little without them. And ultimately, he has this triumphant strength that comes by a resurrection stone he's raised from the dead to win the battle in the end. Some interesting parallels, I think, between what you see there with Harry Potter and what we should be understanding and seeing in the life of the church. Would you say that today's church is all she's meant to be? Do you think today's church even knows who she is? In order to live out the kind of existence God chose and created her to live as this eschatologically hopeful assembly entirely dependent upon the power of God to carry out His mission here and now in the world. More simply, would you say that she, the church, prays? In our church, one of the most encouraging works of God in 2022 had to be the growth of our prayer service. If you want to measure the health and vitality and even the power of a church, I would encourage you just to visit our prayer room. As attendance to prayer, corporate prayer, rises and falls, so also, I think, the spiritual temperature and effectiveness of the congregation rises and falls, and particularly so as we pray for our church's discovery of who we are in Christ and the wealth of resources that involves for being who God raised us to be for His glory in the world. Do we pray for this church? Do we know what to pray for this church? Do we know the things that are foundational for faithfulness? As a church. That's what our text gives us this morning. What we find in our passage is an apostolic prayer for Christ's church. An apostolic prayer for Christ's church. And so let's come to it starting in verse 15 with Paul's thanksgiving to God for healthy churches. As God intends, Paul sees what he's already written and what he's about to write, reason, as in verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 14, to praise God's glorious, eternal, and saving grace, both A, for what it is, and B, for what it has done, what it's made, what it's created. That is, he's blown away, Paul is blown away by the fact that before the world was made, God chose a people in Christ. This is all verses 3 to 14. God chose a people in Christ. He predestined us for adoption in Christ. He sent Christ into the world to redeem us by His blood, to forgive us all of our sins, to make us holy here, to make us heirs of glory hereafter. 
And at the appointed time, He further brought the Gospel to us and He regenerated our hearts and He gave us faith in Christ and He sealed us up by the Holy Spirit that we might have all His blessings in Christ. That we might be at the center of His reconciling purpose in Christ. That we might exist to the praise of His glorious grace in Christ. Dear ones, do you frequent the eternal wells of our salvation? Uh, The grace that you will find there, you will find to be well worth your highest praise and deepest thanksgiving. We have been saved by purest, freest, costliest, eternal, effectual, divine grace. And in the process, it's made something. Like God has made something. What would you suppose, if you were asked, what would you suppose to be the marvelous creation of such bottomless grace? Would it be not just Christians, but churches? Would it be a spiritual family that wears the name of Christ well enough to merit the Apostle Paul's thanksgiving? True and healthy churches are no marvel of nature. They're no marvel of humanity. They're not towers of Babel where all our efforts and all our ingenuity might receive all the glory and praise. No. True and healthy churches are marvels of the eternal grace of God manifest and carried out in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why else does Paul thank God for what he's heard about these churches? Friends, as one who knows this grace himself, Paul thanks God for these heirs of grace and for two proofs that prove them to be so. You see what he commends there in the passage? Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. And again, how remarkable is that? You just read the letter of Ephesians. Paul says these very folks were at one time, count the ways, dead in sins, separated from God, alienated from the truth, and without hope in the world as they followed the devil toward the wrath of God. And then, enter the grace of God. And not only did they believe in Christ, but by the very nature of true conversion, there was a Christic, a Christ-centered takeover afoot in their lives. What I mean is, they not only believed the gospel of Christ to the saving of their souls, but they then welcomed the Christ of the gospel to transform their entire existence. Paul says they began to live with divine purpose. That at the base of their lives was the Word of God. And at its core, there was the church of Christ. And that they, each one of them, gave themselves to her, gave themselves to its ministry. 
Right? They, they sought out peace with their enemies and they labored for peace with each other. They solidified themselves in sound doctrine and not content to leave it in the mind, they massaged the truth of God's Word into their lives. They spoke the truth of God and they kept good and healthy zeal for the Gospel. And they stayed ready to forgive one another and they were honest in their work and they were kind and they were tender in all of their manner. They began to live absorbingly at the cross of Christ. His self-sacrificial love bled into their table talk. Their conversation was wholesome and edifying. It crystallized their evangelistic distinctiveness in the world. It filled their hearts with church-encouraging songs. It produced a submissiveness in their souls to the Word of God and to one another that was key to their Christ-centered harmony as a church. It completely renovated, as you go along, completely renovated their marriages and their parenting. How to be a faithful child. How to fight the good fight of faith in Ephesians chapter 6. How in some, at the very end of the letter, to keep incorruptible love. Incorruptible love for Jesus Christ. And incorruptible love for one another. It was not only their faith in Christ that was being amplified to where the Apostle Paul was, but indivisibly their love toward all the saints. Right? Talk about a Christic takeover. In general, people are not lovers, but haters. Because they're lovers of themselves, first and foremost. But God's grace in Jesus creates a people who, as lovers of God, who knowing the love of Christ manifest on the cross, love His beloved especially. The church has been enabled by God's grace to be a community where impartial and substantial love distinctly thrives. I want you to note there, their love is said to be toward all the saints. If, as in verses 3-14... to it seems God has loved them all so well. Christ so died for them all. And they all freely receive of such love. How could they then begin to pick and choose? Well, Paul commends them here because they practiced what the Gospel preached in terms of grace and in terms of family. And to draw that out again, we're talking about substantial love here. Our society talks a lot about Love, but what it means by love and what God's revealed, what the Bible articulates, what Christ embodied and supremely on the cross are polar opposite things. The one terminates again on self and therefore cannot be love in any scripturally substantial sense. The other lives at the foot of Christ crucified and so find strength to love God and others far ahead of self. There is real commitment in it. I know that's a boogeyman word today, but there is real commitment and devotion in it. It's not fleshly and fragile. It's heavenly and fibrous. And because of that, it's stronger than the crossing of our preferences. 
It's stronger than the clashing of our ethnicities and cultures and traditions. It's stronger than mounting offenses. It's stronger than the impulse to let each other assimilate into the world without giving fair warning, biblical warning. It's stronger than the impulse to narrow the church into cliques or echo chambers or friend groups. It's stronger than the impulse to content oneself just to the outskirts of the body or to prioritize one's own feelings over the clear and objective Word of God. And all this because this love is rooted, isn't it, in the inseparable love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ideally, all that might tear at our love will bow to the strength of love that we find at the cross. Our sovereign bond is the Word made flesh who bled for us. As we submit there, I submit, that will carry the same reputation and receive the same apostolic commendation as these Ephesian churches. This is what the grace of God creates in Jesus. Listen now. It creates healthy churches. Families of believers existing beautifully as the body of Christ. Please see then that in Paul's mind, God's grace takes you, singular, and makes you part of a you, plural. (laughs) He sees faith in Christ as indivisible from love toward all the saints. And then as he continues, he shows that that love is meant to not be kept in the abstract, but to have concrete expressions in the context of known souls living whole lives together for the glory of Christ. We call those local churches. If you're a Christian, it's vital that you're a meaningful part of a visible community of covenanted Christians. It's certainly what the grace of God intends. And so if that doesn't describe you as you sit, let me just encourage you in all love as the new year's upon us, to make resolving that priority number one for this year. Okay? Now, we need to go on. We've considered Paul's thanksgiving to God for healthy churches. Now let's consider Paul's prayer to God for healthy churches. Let's not just miss some simple facts here. Paul prayed. Paul believed in prayer. Paul believed that God heard and answered prayer. Paul believed in praying to God, who hears and answers prayer, for the benefit of the churches, without which, we surmise, we would be impoverished of our riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you and I believe all of that? Do we pray? And if and when we pray, do we pray especially for this church, for her benefit? 
as I've read this in context, it's dawned on me. I think Paul's like, if God has done all this for you in Jesus, least and greatest I can do for you is pray. For you. Is pray that God would keep you and encourage you and cultivate you and strengthen you as He's created you to be. What a ministry we have to ask God every day to continue and complete what, he's, what His grace has begun in Christ. And just so, the first thing Paul prays for healthy churches in our text is that they know their God still better. Would you say that you know God well enough? Would you say there's anything more vital than knowing God in spirit and in truth? By the fact that Paul begins there, I'm going to say no. There's nothing more vital, nothing more important. Do you see what he prays in verse 17? It's that quote, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in what? In the knowledge of Him. And in that, we're to see that this is of singular importance, that it's a sure gift of God, and that in the end, we're certainly talking about more than owning a sound but mere theology. Beloved, vital Christianity can be summed up as one put it. It was J.I. Packer. He put it like this, in knowing God as your Father. In knowing God as your Father. Perhaps we can clarify that as knowing God as He's revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. Paul gives God these titles here on purpose. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. In what's a largely neglected marvel, isn't it wonderful that God can be known? God can be known because God has made Himself known first by revelation, then by regeneration, and then in an ongoing way by illumination. God has been revealed supremely in the Jesus of Scripture. He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know Him, look no further than the biblical record of the historical person, Jesus, and then the testimony that falls out from Jesus. But now to, to know God, you need more than that. <laughs> you need not only biblical revelation, you need personal regeneration. You need the adoptive Father of glory to give you personally His new birth. A person can read the Bible all day long. Right? They can hear the Gospel constantly preached to them, but until the Father of glory then opens the eyes of their hearts to see the glory of Christ in it, they will not believe, they will not cling to Jesus, they will not know God. It's when He by His revelation in Scripture, gives regeneration to the soul that we're united to Jesus. That we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That we're adopted alive and properly said to know God. In 2000, I only knew about Jenny. And very little at that. But now in 2023, which is crazy to think, having been united to her in marriage being alive with her from day to day, I know her. There's no about her. I know her. 
have a vital relationship with her that's entirely changed and bettered my life. Okay, now multiply that by the scale of eternity, and that's something of what it is to know God as an heir of His saving grace. You, church, really know the true God. And you know Him as this self-emptying cinder of His Son. And so you know Him as the heavenly Father who will evidently, in that sending, by that sending, spare no expense in giving us all that we need, both for life and godliness, for time and eternity. Guess what? We have something far better than a Dumbledore to be our most gracious benefactor. But the request now is actually still something else. It's that he would give us continual supplies of what? Not revelation necessarily, not uh, regeneration, obviously it's a one-time event, but of what? Illumination. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, is what it says. The request is that he would keep them from growing dim about him. As the great danger to Christianity is always, as one put it, not apostasy, but apathy. Paul asked God to keep them panting for more and more of Him. Well, how easy it is to lose sight of what we do need most for what we think we need most immediately. Dear ones, to be rich in resources is not the same thing as being rich in God. Do you know God better today than this time a year ago? Is He more to you now than He was then? Is your theology sounder, but also is your theology making your life more sound? Are our regenerated hearts receiving biblical revelation in a way that's producing hopeful and powerful godliness? Do we pray to see and apply more of God? Paul is praying for that first thing. It's that they'd know their God better. Which brings us to Paul's next request, that in view of God, we'd know his inheritance better. As he continues, he asks that he'd enlighten our hearts to know, he wants us to know, verse 18, the hope to which he's called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I tend to think that's all one thing. In general, the hope to which God has called us is heaven or the new creation. And without much explanation, I just want to let that sit on us. Sometimes we hear that and it's so, we're so used to it, we just let it go in and out and we're on with the day, right? Listen, we were due hell. And though we were due hell, God has called us to a hope in Christ 
which is nothing less than eternal life above all in the presence of God. He's called us to heaven. Is that ever and always in front of us? The city of God. Is it some part of our prayers for ourselves and for our church to live in light of glory? Death is not our end. Nor is an eternity centering around our wildest and worldliest aspirations and pleasures. Paul prays that we know what is the hope to which God has called us, which cannot be less than our greatest and godliest expectations. This is what Paul says elsewhere. No mind has conceived, nor ear heard, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Let us content ourselves that the heaven to which we're going is God's heaven. It's the heaven of God. But now, we do want to be as careful and specific as the text is. So look with me at the tail end of verse 18. Paul wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Careful now. In the saints. So now I tend to think that the hope in the first half of verse 18 and this inheritance in the latter half of verse 18 are one thing. They're the same thing. But that Paul then adds a matter of specificity that should serve to change our lives. Paul wants us to know what the saints are to God. And by extension, what we ought to be to one another. The saints, you and me and all, are God's glorious treasure trove of an inheritance. Do we know how rich we are in one another? Dear ones, glory, I want you to hear, glory will not be an isolated existence in the self-centered enjoyment of God. Glory is going to be church. In its most perfect, Christ-centered, Godward version. Have you ever thought about that? It's going to be church. This gathering, this gathering is just a slight foretaste of that one. The members of this church on earth will be benext you, as my daughter would say, benext you in the assembly of heaven. Is that how we view one another? Is it in our prayers to have a vision of the church and of this church that's increasingly similar to God's vision of us? As we do, it will be harder not to love, serve, appreciate, utilize, and gladly assemble with one another. Do we ask God to help us approach the church like Harry following Hagrid to his vault. He has no idea what he has until the vault is opened and he sees all the riches laid aside for him and Hagrid responds to him, you didn't think that your parents would leave you with nothing, did you? So our Father in heaven hasn't left us with nothing. Far from it. 
But when we've thought about all the riches He's afforded us in Christ, has the church and inclusion and life amongst the saints been paramount? We often run, I think, and, and, and finally so, to other true riches. We run to the new heart, and we run to the forgiveness of sins, and we run to the Holy Spirit, and we run to eternal life, and we run to love for the Word, and we run to God and to Christ. And, but God's purpose in Christ is the creation of a community where all those riches and more are collectively embodied. That's the true riches. So again, are we praying to have and apply a heavenly valuation of each other as a church? As co-heirs of grace and glory, as those for whom Jesus bled and died, as those God views in Christ and constitute the riches of His glorious hope and inheritance for us. Let's pray to know God's inheritance better. And finally... Let's pray as Paul does to know God's power better. And so we come to one of the most powerful set of verses. Be good to commit to memory this year. You see it receives the lion's share of Paul's labors in prayer here. He really wants us to know. <laughs> Verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And to that end, he illustrates this power by its primary historical demonstration, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, ascension, and session at God's right hand. And beloved, this that Paul details is really the blazing center of the might supporting biblical Christianity in all of its life and ministry a knowledge of, a faith in, a hoping in, and acting upon the omnipotent grace of God in Christ. Oh, dear ones, so much of church and Christianity today, it may have the look of greatness, but is it divinely stable and powerful? Or is it babble? What I mean is, from start to finish, is it all very human and thus finite and rather frail, ready to crumble at a moment's notice? Or is it defined through and through by hope in God who alone can raise the dead? To believe that the Almighty is for us and to draw that out by prayer and faithful activity is quintessential gospel faith. Have we lost our sense of that faith? Have we come by so many disappointments and by so many letdowns to doubt that? In the name of pragmatism, have we favored and featured our labors while more or less bypassing, laying aside prayer and the power of God. Don't forget the first petition that we've already covered. 
It will do us real good when tempted by meager results or tempted by great ones to own a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing our God. That the Almighty is for us doesn't, does not always mean sunny skies and smooth sailing in life and ministry, but that should never cause us to lose sight of the gospel fact that God is applying His great power towards us. And it's to stabilize us there in a world that can make us feel rather powerless that Paul rolls out the exaltation of Jesus. His power toward us, beloved, is on the level first, you see there in the text, with His raising Jesus from the dead. Now just, just think on the power in that event. Death. A previously undefeated foe was forever defeated. Every enemy power, whether angelic, principality, human, that thought it had the victory in that moment on the cross was then, at the resurrection, conquered, vanquished. This old world was then and there demonstrably interrupted by the first fruit of a new creation. Then and there, all the promises of God concerning our eternal salvation, they came to pass in Christ. More, as a foretaste of trillions more, an earthly body was transformed into a heavenly one constructed with the power of an indestructible life. Indeed, in the resurrection of Christ was no less than the achievement before our time of our spiritual regeneration and bodily resurrection at God's appointed time. We can even say that in it, all the world was made to rise and stand before Jesus. It was an act of omnipotent grace, mercy, power. But Paul continues in verse 20 and says, By this power, God not only raised Christ, He seated Christ at His right hand upon the throne of God, so that whereas, as one put it, the resurrection proclaims He lives, and that forever, the ascension to session proclaims He reigns, and that also forever. Jesus, as another put it, is not merely, as we may think of Him, is not merely an inhabitant of heaven. He is the enthroned monarch of heaven. <laughs> but Paul's not done. As we mosey our way down the text, what are we told? We're told that his seat is, verse 21, far, or just a little, far above All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, that God has, verse 22, put all things under the feet of Jesus and given Him as head of all things. In short, the Father shares His sovereignty and authority as God with Christ. He is the divine king. And therefore, his reign is universal, unimpeachable, and unconquerable.
unconquerable. See that no authority at any time, however mighty, is excluded. No devil, no principle, no sin, no temptation, no death, no wayward heart, no darkened soul, no government, no pastorate, (laughs) no name, no power will ever be greater than the exalted Jesus. All of that will fit the bill always of far below subjected to the power of the risen Christ. Oh, church, not a day passes, but however imperceptible to you and me, everything, everything, in some inscrutable way, is being pulled by the gravity of the Almighty and put under the actualized authority of our Lord Jesus. And here's where all of this is meant to really jolt us. Into verse 22, into verse 23. All of this sovereignty, authority, power, all of it is for our benefit. Our head is the head of all things. Indeed, what does Paul say? But that God has made Jesus head of all things, quote now, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Do we know who we are? And the kind of existence that that should motivate. Do we really know that we are an outpost of the exalted King of glory? Do we know that we are meant to be indomitably central to God's unstoppable purpose in Jesus Christ? Do we realize all the power of God in Christ is always at our backs just waiting for us to raise the sails of prayer. Oh, loved ones, have we maybe mistakenly arrived at a place in our souls where we actually think the devil's got this one? Evil is in control. Sin is unbeatable in that soul. The darkness is too strong in them. Enemy forces are simply too great here for the gospel to really advance. Oh, there is much. I hear you, Paul, but there is much that stands outside and above the power, authority, and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. If I may parrot our Lord here, let not your hearts be so troubled. It's against such lies that you and I exist as we do. We've been raised from the dead. It's against such lies that we exist to be the embodiment of Him 
who fills all in all, whose sovereign and omnipotent presence is inescapable. That's what Paul's talking about there. Is that us? You know it is. But are we living that out together? Are we locking in by prayer to His resurrecting omnipotence for displaying Christ to the world? Can our question change this year from what might He do to what can He not do? Well, friend, if you're unbelieving, I'll tell you one thing that's impossible for you that God has made possible, and that's your salvation. He sent His Son to be obedient to death on a cross to save any who believe from their sins. Won't you receive His grace today and be saved? Beloved, again, would you say that today's church knows who she is and all she's meant to be, that wealth of resources that she has in Christ, Well, in doing our part, let's continue to be what we saw in 2022. A people with a maturing vision of God and of His inheritance and of His power in Christ towards us. In other words, let's continue to be a people this year committed to praying like the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word, for its might, for its power, for its grandeur, for its truthfulness. Oh, let us build our lives as individuals and as a church upon this solid rock. Help us to become even more so a praying people this year. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.